Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, Lee Pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Psalms 34, verses 1 through 8. Is God really good? Are all of God's actions good? Is God's goodness truly satisfying? In today's message, we take a look at David's statement regarding God's goodness, taste, and see. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Psalm 34, what we're going to look at, we're in a vision series. At River Fellowship, we have a four-part vision statement. It's to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. So we want every person that comes and has any affiliation with River Fellowship, we want them to truly experience God. We want them to exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. So for the next several weeks, we're taking each part individually and talking about it. Last week, we started in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, talking about experiencing God. And basically said that God's called us into fellowship with the Son. This morning, we're going to continue talking about the experience God component from here in Psalm 34. But before I get into the passage, I want to introduce some uh, food items. First is a tomato. Just for the record, I hate tomatoes. In my opinion, they're gross and they're not good. They're unedible. (laughs) But what's really funny is I've never eaten a tomato. I just know they're not good. What's even funnier is I eat ketchup on french fries. I love spaghetti with tomato sauce on my spaghetti. So I like aspects of tomato sauce but I do not like tomatoes. And the reason is, they just look gross to me. <laughs> and when you feel it, there's just, something about, there's just something about the consistency. I can't have it. When you cut it into it, all that junk comes rolling out of there. <laughs> it's, just, it's just gross. So I don't, I don't like tomatoes. They're not very good. Second item, some sweet peas. Sweet peas, in my opinion, are of the devil. Not one thing good about it. And I feel that way because of one thing that happened when I was a young kid. When I was little, my mom made me eat green sweet peas. And moments later, I just started throwing them up all over the place. It was so bad that my mom never again made me eat anything I didn't want to eat. It's so bad that today, if there's any sweet peas in anything that I order, I'm going to pick every one of them out. I'm going to get them off of my plate. They're not even going to be seen. They're awful. And it's because of one incident when I ate sweet peas. Okay, here's a third one. It's actually three and four, but it's squash and zucchini. There was a time when I didn't like squash and zucchini. Now, I don't know if you're seeing a trend here, but if it's a vegetable, you know, who knows? (laughs) I really do like some vegetables, just not these. But I used to not like squash and zucchini. But several years ago, Denise was trying to get me to eat a little more healthily, and I wanted to be a healthier eater, so I started eating some squash and zucchini. And what was interesting, as I started to eat them, I really liked them. I thought they were really good, so the more I ate, the more I liked them. And so now I actually love squash and zucchini. I'll order them in any place, I'll bring them in. I love them once I tasted them. Here's the last one. Rocky Road ice cream. Now, this is what I'm talking about right here. I love Rocky Road ice cream. I can't remember a time when I didn't think Rocky Road 
was good. It's always been good to me. I've never known anything different. One of the best things about being able to do this illustration this morning is I had to have an empty carton so it wouldn't make a mess. <laughs> well, you buy them full from the store. So I had to eat all of it before. So I sacrificed for the cause of the message, just so you know. <laughs> I took one for the team. I was actually eating some of this Friday night. And Denise noticed that. And she said, are you using that for an illustration? I said, yep. I said, are you going to eat all that before? I said, yep. I did offer her some just to be nice. But here are the, these four food items that I've loved. I want you to just keep that in your mind for a moment. All right? Now let's look at the passage. Psalm 34. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. This is a, a psalm of David. It's actually a song of David. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called. He's talking about himself here in this verse. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We're talking about experiencing God, the message title is Taste God's Goodness. And the key verse, obviously, is verse 8, the first part. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now that word taste generally means to try the flavor. But specifically, this word in this verse means to discover by experience. And to see means to become visible, to become evident, to become clear. It's obvious. In other words, what David is saying is if you will, quote, try, taste God, if you will experience God, if you will have a, a willingness and an openness to investigate God and connect with God, it will become clear to you. It will be made obvious that he's good. Now, with that in mind, let me come back to the food illustration. Every one of these food items represent how some people see God, or more specifically, what they think about the goodness of God. There are some who see the goodness of God the way I see a tomato. <laughs> they know God's not good. They're convinced God's not good. Now, they've never, quote, tried God. They've never pursued God. They've never investigated God. There's never, ever been an openness in their spirit toward God. They just know God's not good. Now, they utilize some of the goodness of God, like life and breath and health and some of those other things that, that they get to experience, but they are convinced that God is not good. And it's because of something that they see. It's their perception. They look in the world and they see crime and poverty and war and natural disasters and and it's sickness and et cetera, et cetera. And they say there's no way that God is good because this exists. And if God were good, this would not exist. And because all of these evil things exist, God must not be good. So they've made a decision about God's goodness based on their perception. The sweet peas 
represent those that see God the way I see these sweet peas. They're convinced God is not good, but it's because something happened. There was a specific incident in their life that, hap that happened to them that they have determined because that happened, God is not good. There may have been an initial openness. There may have been initial curiosity about God. But in the midst of that time in their life, something bad happened, and because of that, they blamed God and decided God's not good. Could have been a, a sickness or a death in the family. Could have been a divorce situation. Could be financial collapse. It, maybe it was a bad church experience somewhere. Maybe it was uh, a contact with a believer that just really turned them off. Maybe it was conviction that God was bringing into their life and they didn't want anything to do with that. But whatever the reason is, that incident shut them off and they determined God is not good because of that one thing that happened. There are others that view it like squash and zucchini. There was a time in their life they didn't think God was good. But God began to draw them. And they began to have an openness to God's spirit. And they started having a relationship and they realized God is good. And so the more time they spent with God, the more of his goodness he experienced. And over time, they've come to the place where they just know for sure they love the Lord and they know that he is full of goodness. There are some who see God like Rocky Road. They've always believed God's good. There's never been a time really in their life when they've ever doubted the goodness of God. From as far back as they can remember, they believe God is good and they just feast on his goodness. What David is saying here is taste and see that the Lord is good. That statement, I believe, has three applications or the three aspects to this statement. And the first is, it's a declaration. I think David's just making a declaration saying the Lord is good. He's not trying to prove it. He's just stating a fact. God is good. It's like last week we talked when Paul says God is faithful. He wasn't trying to prove that. He just made a statement God is faithful because he'd experienced it over and over. I think the same thing is true with David here in this passage. He's just stating a declaration the Lord is faithful. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord is, is good? I think it means two things. One, he's good in his essence. He's telling us that God is good in his essence. In other words, God can't be anything but good. We talk about God as love. What that means is that's all God can do is love. God cannot not love. The same with his goodness. God cannot not be good because he is the essence of good. He's both the definition of good and the definer of good. In Matthew 19, we see rich young ruler coming to Jesus to ask him some questions. And when he talks to Jesus, he calls him good teacher. And Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. Now, obviously, he's talking about God. He's talking about himself. But the point he's trying to make with the ruler is, you're right. There's only one good. I am the good. And I'm good all by myself. In other words, I am the definition of good. So when you think about the essence of goodness, you think about God because he's the definition of good. But because of that, he's also the definer of good. He's the one that determines what is good and what is not good and defines what's good and not good. And it's because of his essence. What gives God the right to tell all of us what's good and what's not good? It's because of his essence, because of his character, because of his attributes, because of who he is. For example, his truthfulness. He's 100% truthful. 
Titus 1.2 says God does not lie. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. So he's perfect in his truthfulness. His faithfulness, we talked about that in detail last week. But Romans 4.20 says that he is a faithful God, keeping his covenant. God keeps his promises. It's about his holiness, his uniqueness. Holiness means to be set apart from. And God is unique in his holiness. There's no other person who has the same dynamic as his holiness. In fact, Exodus, 35, uh, Exodus 15, 11 says, Who among the gods is like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? He's totally unique in his holiness. And fourthly, his absolute purity. He's 100% pure. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. All this says this, wrapped up in Psalm 25.8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in their way. In other words, because God is the essence of good, he is uniquely good, he is the definition of good, because of that, he is able now to define what is good and instruct sinners and tell us, yes, that's right, that's wrong, this is good, this is bad, because he can define that because he's the definition of that. So first, when David is declaring the Lord is good, he's saying in his essence, he's good. But secondly, he's saying his actions are good. God is good in his actions. In other words, God does good because he is good. His essence dictates his actions. But what's unique about this for me is that God is good even when we don't think he's good. Just because the one who sees God as tomato is convinced God's not good doesn't mean God's not good. All it means is he doesn't believe it. It doesn't change the reality that God is good even when we don't recognize that he's good. And the best part about his goodness and his actions is every action is good. Everything God does is good. Not just the things we think are good. For example, God is good in his discipline. When he disciplines us as his children, he's doing that out of his goodness. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us like a father disciplines his children. And we know that we discipline our children because we don't want bratty, uncontrolled, out of control kids running around everywhere. We want to discipline them so they grow up and live the way they should. God's the same way when he disciplines us. It's out of his goodness so that we don't grow up to be bratty children. Hebrews goes on to say that this discipline allows us to share in his holiness. It continues by saying, no discipline is pleasant at the time, but the result is a harvest of righteousness. In other words, God's discipline is so good that it's maturing us and conforming us into his holiness and into a harvest of righteousness. So God's good even in his discipline. God's good in his restrictions. When he says no to us and keeps us from doing certain things, that's out of his goodness. It's just like when we tell our children, no, don't stick your finger in that socket. Or stop, don't run out in that busy street. It's for protection from a harmful situation. The same is true with God. When he tells you no and says don't do what you want to do, it's out of his goodness. He's good in his, in his faithfulness. He's good in every action. He's good in his boundaries that he sets. Why does he say don't cross that line, don't cross that boundary line, don't live outside of my permissive will? It's because he doesn't want us walking around in unprotected territory. 
So he's good in everything. He's good in his conviction. When God convicts you, that's out of his goodness, as we talked last week. It's because something has, has hindered that fellowship, and he wants to restore that. So all of God's actions are good. And so here's what David is saying first. He's declaring the truth that God is good in his essence and in his goodness. And it's because he has experienced God's goodness over and over and over. That's why in verse 4, David is able to say, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Verse 6, he said, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. When David needed insight and direction and wisdom, God gave it to him every time. He had to remember, David is a king. So he's trying to rule as a king. He needs to make decisions at a king, as a king and run his kingdom. So he's saying, every time I sought the Lord for wisdom and direction, he gave it to me. That's how good he is. Verse 4, he also says, he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, he saved me out of all of my troubles. Again, you have to remember David's situation. Saul wanted to kill David and pursued him several times. Absalom wanted to kill David, pursued him several times. Other kings wanted to kill David and, and, and overthrow his kingdom. So he lives in the midst of, of this constant conflict. And so David is saying, every time I found myself in trouble and in need, I called out to the Lord and every single time he delivered me. Verse 5 is a beautiful passage. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. You have to remember part of David's story too. Remember his incident with Bathsheba, taking another man's wife for himself. Then he has Uriah killed on the front line, so he commits another heinous sin to cover up a previous sin. But after a period of time when that sin is exposed, he confesses it, God forgives it, he's restored, and he experiences God's forgiveness. And what David is really saying here is even in the midst of my past shame, God did not cover my face with shame. Even in my sin, he forgave me and he removed the shame. And now my face is radiant. He never covers me with the shame of that past sin. But what does the verse say? All of those who have experienced this, their face is radiant. All of our faces, in other words, none of us have to live with the shame of our past sin. He never covers our faith with shame. It's a beautiful passage of God's forgiveness and his goodness. And finally, in verse 7, he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. David's saying the reality is, over and over, I've experienced God's presence and his power, his peace, his protection. He's encamped around me. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. It's always his goodness. So what he is saying is God is so good. He's proven it over and over and over. That's why in verse 1 he starts everything by saying, I will extol the Lord. I will praise the Lord. Verse 2 he said, I will boast in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 3, I will glorify the Lord. Can you hear the excitement? Can you hear the jubilance? Can you hear the praise? Can you hear the rejoicing? In my mind, it's as if David is just screaming this out, that God is so good in taste and see. Remember, this is a song. This is a song that David wrote, and to me, it's not a slow ballad. It's a jamming, rocking song, just like what we sang earlier. He is jamming out. He's, he's jumping. He's, he's breaking the strings on his harp. It's so good. We have a uh, we have two granddaughters two, and two grandsons, one on the way. But when we keep the granddaughters, they love to periodically do dance parties. So we turn on the video with Hillsong Kids and we just rock it out and we have a dance party. 
And we're just all dancing and jumping and screaming and just looking like fools. And this is exactly what I think David is doing here. He is so excited. He is declaring in such force. He is so fired up about what God has done. He is praising. He's rejoicing. He's celebrating. He is so thankful. He is just rocking out and jumping and screaming and singing. That's the excitement in his heart and in his spirit as he declares the Lord is good. But secondly, it's not just a declaration. Secondly, I think it's an invitation. I think David's basically saying, I know the Lord's good, and you can know it too. I've experienced the goodness of God, and you can experience it too. So, why don't you come and taste? Taste and see. He's talking to this one who looks at God as a tomato, is convinced that God's not good. It's as if David's saying, oh yeah? Let's come and taste, and you'll see he's good. It's like he's talking to the one with the sweet peas. Something bad happened, you're convinced now God's not really good? Why don't you come taste again? I guarantee you, you're going to find out that he's good. It's an invitation. But thirdly, I think it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge. Remember, David is a fired up dude. He's the one that confronted Goliath. He didn't mind getting in your face. He didn't back down from a challenge. And I think for those people who would not respond to an invitation, a real soft invitation, they're a little bit harder in their spirit, they're a little more uh, resistant to, the op to being open to God, I think David takes it a step further from an invitation and it's just a downright challenge. I dare you to come and taste God. I double dog dare you to come and taste the goodness of God. I think he's just getting in people's faces and saying, I challenge you to come and taste. To me, it's as if David is saying, you may think something else is good, something else is better, something else is gooder than the gooder, goodness of Jesus Christ, of, of God. You may think there's stuff out there that will satisfy you more than God will, but David is saying, I dare you to come and taste because I guarantee you, you won't find anything that satisfies you like the goodness of God. Remember who David is. He's king. He has great power. He has great wealth. He has a harem. He has fine clothes. He has fine food. He has everything that anybody would ever want that this world can produce. But David never says, taste and see that power is good. He never says, taste and see that wealth is good. What he says is, taste and see that God is good. What he's doing is he's challenging people that think there are other things that can satisfy their life. He's saying, no, I dare you to take this challenge. There's not anything that will satisfy you like God and his goodness. I dare you to take the test. I want to introduce one more food item. It's a proverbial apple. You remember the story in Genesis 2 and 3 where in chapter 2, God has told Adam and Eve, you can partake of anything and everything in this garden. It's yours. I'm so good. Look at all this beautiful stuff at your disposal. All except for one thing, and it's to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
one restriction. Even in his restriction, he's good because he knew the result and the harm that that would cause. So God has demonstrated to Adam and Eve his goodness in what he has provided and what even that he has restricted. But the tempter comes along in chapter 3 and begins to create doubt in Eve's mind about the goodness of God and begins to say God's not really good because this over here is really pretty. It's really good and he's not letting you partake of that. He's re withholding stuff from you. He's withholding goodness. In fact, he doesn't want you to be like him. He he, he's not good. God's not good. So Satan instead says, taste and see how good this is. In other words, making an offer to Eve that as a tempter, what I'm offering you really is good. What God's offering you really isn't good because I'm good. God's not good. And Eve's head gets all spinning around. But the scripture says when Eve looks at that, it says that when she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took it and ate, gave it to Adam. Big mistake. Tragic mistake for them. And we see the end of the story, we realize that she bought the lie. She bought the lie that what the tempter offers is good, what God offers is not good. And we see the result of the decision. This is a bigger picture for us even than just original sin. It also is talking about what I call the difference between being pacified and satisfied. We can choose to be pacified or we can choose to be satisfied. And the reality is there are things that the tempter offers us. There are things that the world has to offer that we think look so good that it will fill whatever longing, whatever desire, whatever gap, whatever itch, whatever we have in us that we need fulfilled, that we think is good. We can look at that and it'll look good at us or to us. And so we can make the decision this is good. And some of those things are pacifiers. They will pacify that longing for a season. But there's only one that will satisfy you for eternity. And that's God. And the goodness of God. Because he is the ultimate satisfier. In fact, Psalm 103.5 says that God satisfies your desires with good things. We all have desires. We all have longings. We all have these things that we want Seeking fulfillment and purpose, all this stuff, it's in all of us, and that's not wrong. God's created desire in us for that. But God's the one that will fulfill those desires with good things. In fact, he's going to fulfill that desire with himself, the ultimate good thing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, there's another kind of companion passage to the Psalm 34 passage. Uh, Peter's writing to believers that have scattered all through Asia. And these are believers. So these are people that have given their life to Jesus Christ. They're seeking to grow in Jesus Christ. And Peter is trying to get them to, to desire spiritual growth more and more and more. To grow in their faith. And the reason he says this is in verse 3 of 1 Peter ch uh, chapter 2. He says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, you should desire 
more growth. What is he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus Christ. You have tasted the goodness of God. You have tasted the ultimate goodness and expression of God's goodness, which is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the embodiment of God's goodness. He's the fulfillment of God's goodness. He's the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And so Peter's saying, you guys have tasted the ultimate expression of God's goodness. And for that reason, let's grow in the faith. It's like Rocky Road ice cream. You just can't get enough. Let's just consume it day after day after day after day after day because he's that good. So David is proclaiming the Lord is good. You fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's goodness. In fact, God is so good that he made a way for us to have a relationship with him. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ. So today, maybe you just need to hear this statement as a declaration. You know God's good. You've experienced his goodness over and over. And you just want to hear it as a declaration. And you just want to jump and shout and sing and celebrate just like David did. And expressing in your heart and spirit, yes, God is good. Amen. Maybe some of you need to hear it as an invitation this morning. Maybe you've got some question about God's goodness. Maybe you have some doubt about God's goodness for whatever reason. Maybe you need to hear it as an invitation. Maybe there's someone here that needs to hear it as a challenge. <laughs> You're convinced God's not good. And you just need somebody to get in your face and say, I dare you to come and taste. However you need to hear it, you need to hear this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And the prayer is that once you have tasted him and his goodness, nothing else will satisfy you. And you'll run to nothing else for satisfaction other than God. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages or to learn more about River Fellowship, go to rfamorello.org. Have a great week.